caused it, and then why? Why? I don't know, man. Why not? We have energy. Let's roll with it. Welcome to Caleb Can't Read. I'm Jordan Rabel. I'm Caleb Terrence. Just sitting down, like, oh man, isn't this just a a supernatural? This is just a very natural mid Ohio. Uh, fucking morning talk show. Oh, hey guys. Oh, hey, sorry. Uh, let me just go ahead and take my shoes off like I'm fucking Mr. Rogers. That ought to do it. Just fucking, we're just friends of the people. Is that it? Well, you're wrong. We're better than them. Okay. All right. I'm down with this vibe. Now, have you now or ever been affiliated with the Communist Party? Uh, no. Good answer. Okay, what are but we... we'll see if it stays that way. Okay, what are we doing? Well, let's get into it, shall we? Mm-hmm. James Dalton Trumbo was born December 9th, 1905 in Montrose, Colorado to Oris and Maud Trumbo. When he was three years old, his family moved to Grand Junction, Colorado, about 60 miles away. While in high school, James was a cub reporter for the Grand Junction Daily Sentinel, where he was given jobs to report on uh, court cases and civic organizations. He worked under a man named Walter Walker, who at this point was an active member of the Ku Klux Klan. Oh. However, Walter Walker would learn the error of his ways about a few years after joining and use his own newspaper as an outlet to attack the terrorist organization. About a few years years later. Thereabouts. About thereabouts. How many years, Jordan? Well, I couldn't say for sure. Because it sounds like, uh, when I looked it up... That sounds like an important bit of information. Well, that's the thing. He says that he was only there for a shorter time than he probably was. Mm. (laughs) So, thereabouts. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Wait, how long did it take you to get out of there? To get out? I was never there. Oh, that's good. Actually, I'm incapable of joining. (laughs) As it turns out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Happy Cinco de Mayo. Yeah, not a problem I'm going to (laughs) face. Even after being assaulted by members of the KKK. Wait, happy, did you just, never what? mind, never mind, go. For your heritage. Oh my God, shut, <laughs> Jesus Christ, read. Even after being assaulted by members of the KKK outside a barbershop pretty badly, Walter Walker would still be outspokenly against them and eventually become a U.S. Senator in 1932. Uh, you don't actually need to remember any of that. I just thought it was interesting about that guy. So we worked for that guy who would become a future U.S. Senator. Uh, how long did he do that job? Uh, what? For who? The uh, senator. The senator? What? How long was he a senator? Yeah. Isn't it typically like for fucking life? Oh, so the guy who used to be a KKK member was a senator for life? He's not the only one. <laughs> what? Wait, no, stop all this. We have to. Are you telling me that there are white supremacists in our government right now? Jordan, this is huge. Why are we reviewing dead authors? <laughs> I feel like the people need to know this. Wow. I feel like they might be actively voting for them right this instant. <laughs> we have to get the word out, man. That'll fucking help. Man, this is going to blow this case wide open. Did you know that people in the government might be a bit racist? What? Yep, that is the joke. Um... <laughs> but by this time... Before Walker would even leave the Ku Klux Klan, James Trumbo would be in the University of Colorado between 1924 to 1925, where he was full steam ahead on his career for journalism. Between having a legit job with the Boulder Daily Camera as a student, he was also working for the university newspaper, the yearbook, and even a comedy zine for the school he was publishing. I can't imagine that was too fucking great having a comedy zine for a kid or for, you know, university students in 1924. 1924? Yeah. It was probably just really racist. <laughs> probably. Well, he's on his way to become a U.S. senator. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> well, at the University of Colorado, Trumbo was a part of a fraternity called the Delta Tau Delta, otherwise known as the Dilts. No word on how he liked yeah, it there. way cooler. <laughs> the Hey, guys, the Delts. Good job, everybody. <laughs> Not want, don't want to be the fighting anything? No, the Delts. Okay. <clears throat> no word on how he liked it there or how he himself was treated, but looking up what the individual uh, chapters of Delta Tau Delta have been up to, it looks like they've gotten in trouble for some extreme hazing, particularly in alcohol poisoning. Hmm. In the years of 2010, 2011, 
2012, 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, and 2019. Ooh, oh, okay. and uh, one death due to their hazing in Indiana in 2008. One death. <clears throat> Just one. Just the one. That's been reported. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> wow. So yeah. what kind of, I mean, did you, I'd, I just I'd, have a hard time believing that someone like you would look this up without getting, you know, the details of the, of the hazing. Like I said, there was no, oh, uh, of the ones that are in the yeah, like, no. more recent times. Like how the, you know, of course there's record of this. It would have gotten oh, brought yeah, up just, in court. What, what, what do they do? Oh, they just, just say, keep drinking or you're not going to become a dealt. That's not hazing. That's just being an alcoholic. No, <laughs> not when you're forcing somebody to drink a bunch. I mean, these kids are like fucking 18. Yeah, it's was no. it just drink till you puke or something. It's not creative. I bet it was something kind of funny, but highly inappropriate. One person died, Caleb. <laughs> yeah, alcoholism will do that. What do you? They're not alcoholics yet. They're trying to get them to be that. But if they just have you keep drinking until you're dead, that feels like that. Maybe that kid was not experienced in his drinking yet. OK, well. Look, don't mean to play devil's advocate here, but if it's worked from the 20s until 2010 and there's been no death, I mean, that would kind of come out of what I said. No, no. (laughs) All right. There were probably a lot more throughout the decades that just didn't get reported on. You don't just fucking. okay. you don't just brush dead college kids under the fucking rug, man. It's not like fucking, you know, anybody who isn't from a good background where it just. Yeah, the kid died. What the fuck ever? No, that's a big deal. They would document that like. We're going to brush it under the rug, though, because Dalton Trumbo didn't die. You were lazy and didn't so- <laughs> look it up, and it would have been good. But when James Trumbo was still just a freshman in college, his father had lost everything. His job, the house, not on gambling or alcoholism or anything like that, but the Great Depression was rearing its ugly head, and frankly, some people were just unlucky enough to feel the effects sooner than others. So his father moved the family to Los Angeles in search of work. But James had the option to stay behind and pursue his career in journalism if he wanted. However, he was not yet self-sufficient with his small job, so he opted to go with them. Not long after the Trumbo family settled in L.A. did James begin to attend UCLA. Unfortunately, this also soon marked the passing of his father, Oris, on December 1st, 1926. James finished his semester at UCLA, only attending for one year, Before taking his time to grieve, in his spare time, he started working the night shift at a bakery where he would become a, quote, expert bread wrapper. That's an odd grieving choice, but okay. (laughs) Oh, oh, hey, man, this bread is doing pretty well. I need to grieve. I better go do some menial labor. It's nice and salty on this bread. I like what you're doing. It's my tears. Yeah, it's good. Keep it up. Oh, wow. Okay, that. And while... (laughs) Fucking <laughs> Fuck you and your one dead kid. I got a dead father over here I'm that just, at least he had his time. You know what are you talking about? Your dad's Oris. Oh, Oris, right, right. <laughs> Sorry, I'm very tired. Your father's fine. It's been a long week. <laughs> now, while I'm I'm sure wrapping bread didn't pay him super handsomely, prohibition came about in 1920. So during his time at the bakery, James was also doing some light bootlegging. Finally, two years after he left uh, UCLA, James would attend his third university, the University of Southern California, which he would attend between the years of 1928 and 1930. You know, he didn't really talk about his prohibition kind of, or his uh, bootlegging days. He was just kind of like, yeah, I did a little bit. Anyway, moving on. That's so much more interesting than... Uh, right, right. Yeah. But, but, you know, here's the thing, though. I wonder if, like all the bread he was with or something like, I don't know how to make beer, no, but it, I don't was, think there's a connection there. No, okay. I don't think there's ever been like an issue getting <laughs> he your make, hands like, on yeast. sourdough and water and just like, all right, boys drink up. <laughs> I highly doubt that. You don't know. I you mean, don't know. I, I don't, but yeah, I'm just saying, I, well, Jesus, there I didn't you say go. that wasn't a thing. I just there said I doubted go. it. Here we go. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> Now, between school and no work, can see your face. It's not funny to them. Uh, no, I don't care. I just want to make you uncomfortable. You're, now, between school, <laughs> between school and working at the bakery and yes, selling hooch, James was also beginning his writing career, not just in journalism. In the four years between his father's death at the end of 1926 and his graduation from the University of Southern California in 1930, James Trumbo had written 88 short stories and six novels. Unfortunately, 
all of them were rejected by publishers. Uh, how many have you done? I've gotten some practice in, you oh, know, okay, cool, just, cool. just, um, but you know, Cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, no we it's can, we can leave on it my there. own time. No, you're, you're visibly yeah. uncomfortable mm. about that question. I apologize. Why don't we move on? No, no, no. It's it's fine. <clears throat> no, it's cool. You you you're good. And as much as this would crush anyone else, not that I would know, all this rejection did not stop James. He just figured maybe journalism is what's best best for me. And it's at this point that he'd really get his start. He wrote articles for Vanity Fair, <clears throat> the Saturday Evening Post, the Hollywood Spectator, and McCall's which was a women's fashion magazine that for some reason also published short stories. And as a side note, McCall's publishing fiction somehow got them in trouble because the stories were often seen as too thrilling for women to be reading. Mm. They published fucking Ray Bradbury, Willa Cather, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, John Steinbeck, Kurt Vonnegut. They were a fucking powerhouse publication. I do... I. I I'm sure that there were like other magazines out there that just had fucking warning on there, like no ladies wanted, no turn away, boys only. But yeah, you know, cool stuff. Yeah, super cool men stuff. stuff. Yeah. No girls in the stories, just couple of men kissing on each other because it's the most masculine thing that you could be doing. Yeah, you know, it's just these super cool. You know, we just have these super cool vintage bodybuilding magazines, man. Scoutmaster Dan. Yeah, but Trumbo's fiction. What? what? <laughs> That was not where I was taking that. What the fuck? But Trumbo's fiction isn't what got him published. He was still just a journalist at this point. It wasn't until 1933, at the age of 27, that James would get his first piece of fiction, a story called The Wolcott Case, published in International Detective Magazine. And from here, James would remove his, uh, remove his first name, shortening it to the famous pen name he'd use for the rest of his life and how I shall be referring to him from now on as Dalton Trumbo. I got nothing. Is that a shock to you? Ah, it's been Dalton Trumbo this whole time. Ah. Thanks. Yeah, no, you. Yep. <laughs> Good. Why Glad. do you, why do you dig this in? The whole point is that I don't know this. I, I try to give you benefit of the doubt. Just no, you don't. You fucking liar. <laughs> I just like to lord it over you. Now you're mean and you're a fucking liar. <laughs> and tall. Eventually. <laughs> <laughs> you have one inch on me, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Better believe it. Eventually, with Dalton Trumbo working at the Hollywood Spectator, he networked his way into a position as a script reader for Warner Brothers. Do you know what a script reader is? Um, it sounds somewhat self-explanatory. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Uh, but I don't want to sound... Yeah, yeah, fuck it. What is it? Basically, I mean, the executives are the ones that decide what movies are going to get made and shit, but they've got, like, all these shitty scripts that come to them. They're not going to read all of them. Instead, they're if going to have... If you long-windedly tell me that it's somebody who reads a script, I'm going to be It, it is somebody who reads... The just fucking say no, that. No, no, no. It's somebody who reads shitty scripts, gets rid of them, and then takes the good scripts and puts them in front of the executive faces so they don't have to read 200. Like someone who reads scripts? Yes. Okay. That's what a script reader is. Okay, thank you. It's self-explanatory, Caleb. Okay, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we could have avoided that whole... Was that 10 seconds? <laughs> and while Dalton was working for the movie studio in the B-movie department, he was also working on what would be his first published novel. One that was going to take some serious effort on his part not to just be tossed aside. That novel, called Eclipse, was published in 1935 by English publisher Lovat Dixon and Thompson Limited when Dalton Trumbo was 29 years old. Now, the novel itself is fairly simple. John Abbott is a man working to survive in the capitalist hellhole that is Shale City. The book is divided into three parts. The first part of the story is around 120 pages of a single day in John's life. The second part is about 100 pages, detailing a full year in Shale City. And the third part is another 100 pages about John venturing out past his little town into the greater American landscape. That's it. It's 367 pages of depression, basically. But here's the thing. While this wasn't necessarily an autobiography, Trumbo definitely based the story on reality. As his daughter would later say, he based the main character of John Abbott on his father, Oris, and his struggle finding work is very factual. And while the book did only find meager success, it was still given great reviews by anyone except those of Grand Junction, Colorado, who knew that Shale City in the novel was a very light veil for their town. Do you remember we kind of talked about it with um, Edward Abbey? He did his first novel, Jonathan Troy, 
And basically like people thought it was fine, but the people in his town were like, Hey, somebody, somebody from our town actually produced something. Good job. And then they all read it and they're like, Hey, Hey, that sounds like a, that sounds like Tim Johnson. This sounds exactly <laughs> like me. Yeah. He's not, he just switched the first letters of my names. <laughs> what the fuck? Oh no, it's Mitt Johnson now. <laughs> yeah. And they're just like, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just, I just enjoy a beer every now and then. I'm <laughs> just like, I don't beat my wife, you know? And so that's kind of right. just how, <laughs> Hey, I'm gonna go hit my wife about that. Uh, and that's just kind of how people from Grand Junction took this was it was like, it's a book about being shitty and depressed in a shitty little fucking town. And then they were all like, we like it here. <laughs> yeah. Well, apparently, just like with Edward Abbey and his first novel, Jonathan Troy, the people that came from the town of Grand Junction knew instantly that the inhabitants of Shill City were based on them as well. I guess they thought the struggles detailed in Eclipse stemming from their own incompetence was a bit too on the nose. But that wasn't necessarily Dalton Trumbo's intent like it was with Edward Abbey's. Edward Abbey hated his town and the people in it, but Dalton wasn't attacking the town he grew up in. No, he was specifically going after capitalism. Well, yes, the characters in the book are apparently not the brightest. Though I haven't read it, he was trying to show that it's easy to take advantage of people if they live in a capitalist society, just like his father had been taken advantage of. The year after his first novel's release, now in 1936, Dalton Trumbo released his second novel, called Washington Jitters, about the bureaucracy within the New Deal. Oh, this is early. He's going to get in fucking trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's not very exciting, and I don't know that anyone's ever read it. Um, You know, just like, yeah, fuck the New Deal. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, you tell it like it is. Like, no. But... Anyway, back at Warner Brothers, while it was their intent to keep Dalton Trumbo in the B-movie department of their agency, it was soon seen that Dalton had some actual talent in reviewing and revising their scripts. It was while Trumbo was uh, coasting on the edge of mediocrity in his writing career that he helped write two films, one of which was Road Gang, about a couple of reporters unfairly sent to prison for exposing the practices of a couple of corrupt politicians. That does not sound as awesome as the title. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> like, no, it's Road anyone. gang. Woo! <laughs> Journalists in prison. Uh, okay. The other film was Love Begins at 20. Let you think about it for a second. Um, I got nothing. <laughs> Good. Got? About an absentee. Hey, wait, no, go back. Explain it to me. <laughs> hey, come on. Hey, hey. <laughs> Don't it's you a, fucking don't don't move on. I'm curious. <laughs> well, anyway, you can't explain it, can you? You fat piece of shit. <laughs> no, no, no. It's about an absentee father deciding to become a good dad again. There, you happy? No. Is that as exciting as yeah. There you go. No. Well, like I said, these are B movies that no one will likely have seen or remember. But it was these two movies that made Warner Brothers see the value in Trumbo's writing, if not for his novels, then at least for his screenplays. They had Dalton work on several projects through the late 30s and 40s after this. Again, none of which you've heard of. Devil's Playground, Fugitives for a Night, A Man to Remember. But most famously, Five Came Back with Lucille Ball. Again, I know you don't know any of these movies, and honestly, besides Five Came Back, neither do I. But I will say that these movies were all very popular when they first came out, and most importantly, made Warner Brothers a shitload of cash. This led to Dalton Trumbo climbing to the big leagues within Hollywood. In 1938, Dalton Trumbo married a woman named Cleo Fincher when he was 33 and she was about 22. Lame. <laughs> Together, they lived on a ranch in L.A. and soon had their first daughter the following year, Nicola Trumbo, with another child, Christopher Trumbo, after that in 1940. But before their second child, in 1939, Dalton Trumbo released his third and most well-known novel. Inspired by an article he'd read long ago about the Prince of Wales coming to thank a Canadian soldier at a veteran's hospital for his services during World War I. While the Prince of Wales stood there with nicely combed hair and dressed to the Royal Nines, the soldier could do nothing, as all of his limbs had been blown off during an artillery attack. Now, the phrase, Johnny, get your gun, was a rallying cry for the United States enlistment services back in the day as a way to say, come on, little Johnny, go grab a gun and kill you some foreigners. Yes, I got the vibe immediately. Yeah, right. the phrase had been turned into an like even a fucking hit song that was getting covered by numerous artists over the years, just all about fellatioing our flag. And mm -hmm. Dalton Trumbo was sick of the idea that all these people thought there was something glorified about mass murder. 
It was an ironic twist that Dalton Trumbo would call his book, Johnny Got His Gun. He wished the phone would stop ringing. It was bad enough to be sick, let alone having a phone ring all night long. Boy, was he sick. Not from any of their sour French wine, either. A man couldn't hold enough of it to get a head this big. His stomach was going round and round and round. Fine thing nobody'd answered that phone. It sounded like it was ringing in a room about a million miles wide. Joe Bonham finds himself in a memory. A memory where he's awakened by a phone call from his mother in the middle of the night, telling him that his father had passed away. He drives to his parents' house and sees his father for the last time, consoling his crying mother and sister as he watches some men carry his body away. All throughout this dreamlike state, however, Joe can still hear the telephone ringing. It's so loud and painful that Joe thinks, hey, maybe I'm hungover. But then Joe wakes up. Everything is dark, but he can still hear the ringing in his head, and only in his head. Because as Joe slowly starts to wake up from his coma, he first realizes that he can't open his eyes. No, they're open. He's just blind. And he listens for something, anything but that ringing sound, and finds that he's deaf, too. And you know, he's almost relieved. Relieved that he'll never again have to see or hear the sounds of war. Joe doesn't have time to discover anything else about his predicament as he drifts off again into consciousness. Out of consciousness? Uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> into unconsciousness. Oh, ooh. Both wrong. Well, what do you want me to just... You want me to not correct you and just have every listener think you're a fucking idiot? Like, hey, if they're all as dumb as you are. Or probably just learning English. What up, Bangladesh? <laughs> His last thoughts are about what it will be like to have to communicate by writing everything down. He dreams again on old memories of childhood. How everything seemed distant in his town of Shale City. Even the war. Although he heard people talking about it, the war never felt like a reality until his father moved the family to Los Angeles. But there in L.A., everything felt real, and the war felt real enough that after his father died and he had thoughts on morality, Joe signed up for battle, you know, to fight for something. Fight against death, maybe. But soon, Joe finds that he's fighting for something he's not even a part of. He's there holding the gun, sure, but for ideals and politics that aren't even his. When Joe wakes again, he feels a pinching sensation in his left arm, and he realizes that his arm is gone. More than anything, he's upset because on that arm is the ring his girlfriend gave him. And this, of course, leads him into memories of his girlfriend, as he remembers hugging her before he leaves for war, realizes that both his arms are gone. Mm. Joe slips back into unconsciousness, remembers swimming in his youth. As he begins to drown in his dream, he kicks his legs only to awaken and find that those are missing too. He tries to scream and finds his tongue gone as well. Okay, this is getting a little funny. He's <laughs> they call him the human potato. No. Oh, whoa. <laughs> whoa, dude. <laughs> Goddamn. Panicking, Joe Bonham tries to feel for what he does have and makes an assessment of his situation. He has no arms, no legs, no eyes, no tongue, no ears, and no nose. Jordan. What? Okay, no, go down the he, list. He's, no, go down he, the list. No, I want No, that's it. I finish mean, he's, the list. Is he, that the end he, of the list? Yeah. What? If that doesn't remind you of a blank Mr. Potato Head, what does it remind no, you of? Jordan. What? That's not what I'm curious about. What? Oh. Where the dick at? Mm. Does it say anything about that? Or? Uh, it, it's still there, actually. Oh, the dick's still there. The dick is still there. Yeah. Okay. That that comes up in our store. Now okay. <laughs> it does a little bit. Right. Uh, he tries to find a way to choke himself and commit suicide, but finds that he's got a trachotomy tube in his throat as well. So he'll be breathing no matter what he does. Damn, foiled by that tube in the throat and not my <laughs> inability to move. <laughs> well, he like he tries to like kind of like shimmy the fucking like blanket up around his neck and maybe he can like twist it around his head or something but he's just like god damn it what like he's trying to create a noose like just to choke himself out like maybe if i roll out of bed it'll fucking like like with his teeth no he's just like he's just rolling his head around the fucking blanket trying to like i don't know scarf it i guess trying to scarf it with his head yeah look what? man he's what? doing what he can all right i don't what can he do though? That's what I'm asking. Like, Nothing. Like, okay, yeah, like 
He thinks that the doctors who saved him probably only did so to show off their skills to the others, not that they actually cared about any quality of life he would be left with. Ooh, that is a dark fucking thought. All right, go on. <laughs> There's even this part in the book where Joe feels a nurse changing his dressing and lifts the sheet coverings, uh, sh- the sheet that's covering Joe's face out of curiosity, and then feels the vibrations from the floor as she quickly runs out of the room. So, like, he's Ooh. fucked up. Ooh. And throughout the book, Joe slips in and out of consciousness. So often, he and the reader lose track of what's a dream and what's reality. I mean, without eyes, all he's in is darkness. So he'll fall asleep randomly and not know if he's actually in a dream or not, because soon a lot of his dreams are out of the darkness, or like just in darkness as well. One of the most memorable scenes to me is that he notices that he's got an unhealed wound on his side and feels a rat beginning to gnaw at it. And no matter how much he shakes his body around, there's nothing he can do to shake it off. I mean, it is a World War One hospital, so rats being there are extremely likely. He just never finds out if that was a real thing or not. Hmm. This is Joe's life over the next several years. He begins to know people by the stomp of their feet when they walk. He'll know who's on duty when they change his diaper. He also begins recounting things to kill the boredom. His times tables, old poems, prayers. And it's the only excitement he has. Nothing changes outside of the darkness. The only things that happen of note is once when they wheeled Joe to a new room and once when a nurse fell down. Besides that, nothing else happens. But one day, he feels the feet of four or five people coming into his room all at once. He's hoping to God it's not his family, and he starts writhing around not wanting to be seen. But instead, he feels a medal pinned to his chest and a kiss on the forehead. He's been awarded by the military for his bravery. And this pisses him off so bad that now he's writhing around so he is seen. Like yeah, he's trying still to shake spit, right? Like he's well, he's trying to shake the fucking like sheet off of his face and shit. Like <laughs> he's like he, he's fully sitting up and tr- just yelling this guttural noise, like you did this to me. But all that comes out of this pig-like yell as as they just walk away. Like they don't understand what he's doing. They're just like, oh, you're welcome. You know, <laughs> just walk out. Like, maybe we should have just, you know, on the clip to do his clothes or something. I don't know. Maybe just <laughs> pinning it under him was not. They have agitated him a bit. I confused him. <laughs> You've confused him. You've confused Mr. Potato Head. Yeah, I'm sorry. I did not think this. <laughs> Jordan! Fuck, man. I don't know. Something about that feels wrong. Like anyone in that condition is going to Look, I this. asked if his dick was intact, <laughs> but for some reason, Mr. Potato Head jokes feel over the line here. I don't know why. They just do, okay? Some kids got in here and turned him into a battery. (laughs) They made a clock out of him. God damn it, dude. (laughs) Eventually, Joe gets an idea. Morse code. He bangs the back of his head against the pillow and tries for days to get someone to respond. Most of the time, they just think he's going nuts. On at least one occasion, they just straight up sedate him to just quiet him. But one nurse tries to figure out what's going on with Joe, so she starts doing things to see if she'll stop. She changes his dressings, nothing. Changes his diaper, no. Changes his bed sheets, no. So she stops for a moment, and then she just, like, jerks him off. <laughs> and Joe's just like, no! Oh, all right, you know? <laughs> I told you it comes up. So at least you got a happy ending, or so did he, I guess. Fuck off, Well, How is that Jesus Christ? (laughs) One day, Joe gets a new nurse. He can tell by the steps she takes that she's of a different size and weight than the others. And he decides to try banging out SOS on his pillow again. And miraculously, the nurse kind of gets it. She doesn't know if he's trying to do Morse code or not, so she traces the letter M on his chest. This is the first time anyone's gotten what Joe was trying to do. So he starts nodding like, yes, yes. But the nurse just spells out Merry Christmas and then walks out like, <laughs> I don't know, like that. Yeah. It's a step in the right direction. I mean, honestly, like getting jerked off was probably two steps ahead of what he wanted. But like, it's, I guess, kind of a step back for him, maybe. Uh. And although he was so close to communicating and this should be a major letdown, Joe sits back and digresses in the thoughts of Christmas. So the next day, Joe starts smacking the back of his head into his pillow again, and this time another nurse gets it. Maybe the one from yesterday told her what was up, 
don't know, but she starts tapping on his forehead to mimic Morse code. She's not saying anything, but it's just to see if that's what Joe is trying to get at. And Joe starts nodding his head like, yes. So she runs out of the room. She brings someone back with her and the guy taps on Joe's forehead. His first bit of conversation in several years, quote, what do you want? And at first, Joe doesn't know. He didn't think he'd ever make it this far. He starts to quickly cycle through the possibilities until he realizes that he has none. He decides to tell the man that he wants to make money being shown in medical exhibitions and freak shows. Like, this is what happens when you go to war type stuff. How the fuck do you say that in Morse code? I mean, it's a long fucking... I, he's got to get migraines. It's a lot of dudes. <clears throat> yeah, that's kind of fucking suck. And to send the money he makes as an, exhi- um, as an exhibition to his family. And the man simply taps out, What you want is against regulations. Who are you? And as the doctor continues to respond in some long, drawn-out answer, Joe just kind of blanks out. He knows that the last bit of freedom he could have had is now gone. The people at the hospital aren't there to rehabilitate him. They're there to keep him until he dies a natural death. To keep Joe from responding, the doctor gives him a sedative as he taps out, Why? Over and over again as he drifts off to sleep. Now in Joe's mind, he has given everything to war. His limbs and will to live are gone, all taken away from him. He sees himself as some weird new Jesus Christ, someone who has sacrificed everything to show others the terrible cost of violence. Joe calls himself the Battlefield Messiah. The book ends with this, quote, Put the guns into our hands and we will use them. Give us the slogans and we will turn them into realities. Sing the battle hymns and we will take them up where you left off. Not one, not ten, not ten thousand, not a million, not ten millions, not a hundred millions, but a billion, two billions of us, all the people of the world. We will have the slogans and we will have the hymns and we will have the guns and we will use them and we will live. Make no mistake of it, we will live. We will be alive and we will walk and talk and eat and sing and laugh and feel and love and bear our children in tranquility and security and decency and peace. You plan the wars, you masters of men. Plan the wars and point the way and we will point the gun. There are a lot of themes to Johnny Got His Gun, but using the poor working class as pawns seems to be the biggest one to me. Because whether he's in the hospital or thinking back to a childhood memory, There's always some form of loss happening in Joe's story, and it's almost always coming in the form of a superior being shitty to someone beneath him. And let's face it, Dalton Trumbo wasn't trying to pull punches with this story. He put everything into the extreme. So while Joe has more and more taken away from him, and he begins to reawaken from his coma, he thinks back on the loss of old jobs, businesses, and families within the small town of Shale City, Colorado. And most of it is happening due to capitalism. And the thing is, the stuff that happens in Joe's flashbacks are, again, actually a bit semi-autobiographical, so it's not like Trumbo was just making shit up here. Johnny Got His Gun was released in September of 1939 by J.B. Lippincott, and coincidentally released two days after World War II began. Upon its release, it was given, given rave reviews, particularly in the unique style of Trumbo's stream of consciousness writing. This was 1939, so James Joyce had just released Finnegan's Wake that very same year, and although both Joyce and Trumbo used stream of consciousness in their books, one is a lot easier to go through. Like, yeah, I remember that shit. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even get that far into it. God it's damn. hard. Like, it's nice that Dalton... Wait, Tr- James Joyce was the... Uh, he he was one of the fart guys, right? Oh, yeah. One, oh, fuck, man. We've he had was multiple fart was it, wasn't Oh, that, yeah. yeah. Oh, he'd be, like, master of the farts, but, I mean... You know, he'd ha- his quarterback would be Marquis de Sade, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a bit darker. <laughs> I, I wouldn't really lump in somebody who uh, did things that fucked up with someone who just enjoyed farts consensually with partners. Like, I, I mean, guess, it's yeah. funny, but like... Yeah. Well, like, the thing that, that cracks me up is that Marquis de Sade tried to unconsensually get farts out of women, too. Like, <laughs> Yeah, that's very different, man. <laughs> like, that's, that actually becomes not funny. <laughs> like... Well, like, it's nice that Dalton Trumbo recognizes that the book is being told in Joe's head, so he uses a lot of run-on sentences and very little punctuation. That's fine. But Finnegan's Awake is a fucking nightmare, so I'm sure the critics to those earlier reviews of Johnny Got His Gun were very pleased with what they saw in comparison. Now, although the book could be picked up at any time, 
Dalton Trumbo also had it in the chapters serialized in a Communist Party newspaper called The Daily Worker in 1940. Woodrow Guthrie was actually a columnist at this newspaper. You know, Alice's Restaurant, that guy? This uh, Machine Kills, he had it written on his guitar. Doesn't I wonder what the fuck that was from. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dalton Trumbo himself would later become a member of the Communist Party USA. Because at the time, they were the only people speaking out against the United States' involvement in World War II. And as you may have guessed, Dalton Trumbo was not a fan of war. The story of Johnny Got His Gun became so popular, it became a rallying point for leftists all throughout the 40s. And soon after its release, Johnny Got His Gun even became a popular radio play put on by Arch Obler for NBC Radio and starring James fucking Cagney as Joe. He's the guy that's always, yeah, see? Like, he was the guy who did that. He was the mob guy oh. from that time period. So he plays fucking Joe. Hey, she played with my penis. Hey, where are my feet? Oh. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> <laughs> if I had the arms, I'd fucking strangle you, guy. Play Whoa. with my penis. Oh, yeah. Dude. <laughs> Dude. fucking asshole <laughs> and the novel won one of the earliest national book <laughs> awards in 1939 <laughs> for most original book as well don't laugh at his success <laughs> my bad <laughs> we can just go down that path if you want it's like <laughs> eh, I'm like one of those saddles you get from Adam stop and Eve it. See? stop it <laughs> stop dude Mm, I'm like a liberator, she. <laughs> you know the name of it. Well, now I know what you've been getting up to. I don't know that shit. Oh, look at him going quiet now. Uh, anyway. Wow. <clears throat> Use offer code Caleb Can't Read to get 15 <laughs> I don't have a sponsorship. Don't, hey, man, that's a very sensitive topic. Don't joke about that, man. Now it's not funny. <laughs> <laughs> Well, with the success of this one novel, Dalton Trumbo soared as a screenwriter in Hollywood. He was writing some of the biggest blockbusters of the early 40s. And while making these films, Trumbo started getting a closer leaning to the Communist Party in America. He wrote a novel in 1940 called The Remarkable Andrew, about the ghost of Andrew Jackson coming to see the America of today and not really getting down with the fact that a lot of people were openly being fucking Nazis. Yeah. Although... I guess I shouldn't say we're Nazis, still kind of a problem around here. Yeah, I but, was going to say. you know, still. I was going to do that thing where I'm like, oh, well, good thing that's not a fucking problem. Anymore. <laughs> oh, blah, 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 we blah, blah, already blah, went through yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. They're all senators. Yeah, I know. Well, anyway. <laughs> once Germany... Or and worse. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> once Germany invaded Russia in June of 1941, the Communist Party USA changed their position on World War II and had to go along with whatever the sentiment in Russia was at the time which was, of course, attacking Germany. But it was with this declaration of war that both Dalton Trumbo and his publisher decided not to reprint Johnny Got His Gun. They probably saw it as too close a reality for what was actually going on in the world. Well, either way... Trump, I mean, maybe. I mean... If there are literal Nazis that need to be shot at. Yeah, but like... Though, I mean, now we know that, but at the time it was yeah, like... Yeah, no, I get it, but yeah, it's like, yeah. I, you know... <clears throat> yeah. I mean, this was before even, this was June in 1941, so this is before we were even in the war. <clears throat> I mean, like, like, like war as we know it, no, yeah, never a good yeah. thing. But like, <laughs> uh, if, if sometimes you have to get violent because that's your only option, then that's, right, right. You know, it's, you know. But yeah, no, I see yeah. where he's going with it, though, where yeah. like, I mean, honestly, we didn't even know about like the camps and shit until like way late. You know, they were all just rumors and shit. So it's like, he's just like, oh, you're just going to go kill people with different ideologies. And it's like, eh, just you wait. <laughs> <laughs> that thought's hey, going to age like milk. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Trumbo tried his best to do his good American duty. He had received two letters from people who had read his book and thought that the moral of Johnny Got His Gun was that any conflict should be swiftly ended uh, through peace treat peace treaties rather than war. In this case, then, America should just go ahead and sign a treaty with Nazi Germany before the war slips into American waters, and we just kind of kill our own Jews in solidarity. Oh. Yeah. So. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, was that a, was that a. That was what they wrote him. Oh. Was like, oh, here's the point of your novel. 
your point is that war is a travesty. We should just join forces against, you know, yeah. the enemy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and like I mentioned before, the Nazi death, death camps were very much a rumor at this point. We did have a lot of testimonials from people who had escaped, but the truth the truth was so horrific that our government and all governments for that matter did not take these stories seriously. And to a lot of people who had already held anti-Semitic views, this was just a last ditch effort for them to gain sympathy and save themselves from what we all know must be done basically was what they were like giving him. Well, Dalton Trumbull was horrified by these letters. Remember he wrote a book about Andrew Jackson's ghost saying, fuck Nazis. So Trumbo forwarded these letters to the FBI. Now, the people who sent the letters, they never got questioned. Instead, the FBI came to Dalton Trumbo's door and started questioning him instead. <laughs> if that gives you any idea as to where we may have been heading. And to Dalton Trumbo, that was the last straw. The FBI had been investigating him sometime earlier, probably for his affiliation with the Communist Party USA, but now instead of scaring him away from the communists, they just pissed him off enough that he actually ran to them. He signed up as a member of Communist Party USA in 1943. What the fuck else is he going to go at that point? <laughs> right. And in 1945, Dalton Trumbo had his second daughter, his third and final child, Melissa Trumbo, also known as Mitzi. She actually dated Steve Martin in her early 20s. That Thought that was neat. And fun fact. It's <laughs> a light little fun fact. Anyway, yeah. so the Nazis. So yeah. in 1946, Dalton Trumbo wrote an article called The Russian Menace, in which he dared try to huma uh, humanize the viewpoint of Russian citizens. Basically, what he said was, imagine if you're a Russian citizen, a mechanic, let's say, and you're coming to America for work. Now everyone hates you. You've had no affiliation with the military. No politics. You don't even watch the evening news, and now people hate you. That would make your life hell, right? Like, that was just his whole point was like, let's not try to demonize people. Let's try to demonize maybe their governments, their politics, but like, never the people. No, crazy. Throw that out. <laughs> well, although Trumbo tried to prove a point with this article, it soon became evidence against him, making him enemy number one in Hollywood. William Richard Wilkerson, better known as Billy Wilkerson, was the founder and owner. Of the Hollywood Reporter. In it, he ran a continuing article called Billy's List, where he would call out anyone working in Hollywood with communist affiliations, saying that they were using their tight-knit communist networks to not allow any anti-commie movies to get made, and only allowing for red propaganda. Hmm. Wilkerson's first article in the Hollywood... Oh, hey, that sounds kind of... What? Oh, go on. Oh, what? On. Is, no. that, is that weird? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wilkerson's first article in The Hollywood Reporter named about a dozen names, Dalton Trumbo being one of them. Wilkerson also published an article as a response to people in Hollywood wanting to unionize, calling the article a vote for Joe Stalin. <laughs> Thank God you're not in a union, right? I don't know a Joe Stalin. <laughs> Who? Who the fuck is that? Who the fuck is Joe Stalin? <laughs> fuck is this joseph biden guy it's a close name but that's not who i'm thinking of i don't get it <laughs> now jumping ahead a little here this was all bullshit absolutely none of the shit he was talking about was true and he knew it supposedly billy wilkerson went to confession before publishing this article knowing that it would legitimately ruin lives for better sales for his newspaper but at the behest of the priest himself who thought it was a good idea he went ahead and published it he was like, Father, I'm about to sin mighty heavily. And he was like, yeah, fuck those commies. Do it. <laughs> like, <laughs> and although Billy Wilkerson had no proof of anything whatsoever, the House on Un-American Activities Committee, otherwise known as HUAC, got their start on blacklisting members of Hollywood directly from Billy's list. Now, in all fairness, the HUAC didn't start out this way. Hitler had been in power halfway across the world since 1933, but by the time the HUAC was actually founded in 1938, just one year before the start of World War II, signs of fascism were starting to rear its head in Washington. And about a year and a half after the HUAC's formation, Army General George Van Horn Mosley testified before the committee that we had to do something about the, quote, Jewish communist conspiracy. <laughs> I was he wondering when they were going to put those two together. <laughs> 
Where's your bingo card? <laughs> All this communist conspiracy stuff is sounding very similar to what usually no. they put together with Jews. So. But here's here's the thing. So this guy goes before the 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 House of Un-American Activities Committee or whatever. Mm-hmm. He goes before them and he goes on this tirade. Guess for how long? I don't know, fucking 40 minutes. Five hours. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> that is grandfather, great-grandfather level bullshitting. Just five and then, hours? You, you ever see the, and the traffic lights, you think they don't control those? Like, <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. How do you c- come up with enough I don't think material? any sane point you have to make uninterrupted is going to last five hours. <laughs> it, I, I, he did it? No. <laughs> no, it was not sane. Oh, okay, I'm okay, sorry. Fuck. Right, right, right. Okay, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Jewish slash communist conspiracy. Oh, it's not a slash, sir. That would say that they're working in conjunction. I think that this is the same thing to him. Wow. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, no hyphen. This is just who they are together. The cabal, if you will. Oh. Had this guy not been forced to retire after he made this little speech, he would have led people into World War II, and God knows what kind of decisions he would have made. He probably would have been like, they're doing a great job over there. But although they started with the best intentions, the history of the House of Un-American Activities Committee soon became muddied. Had they just soon? been... Yeah, well, hey, they threw that guy out, you know, <laughs> had they just Man, we're not going to get any well, traction. Here. <laughs> here's the thing. They started off just going after fascism. Fine. But they almost simultaneously went after communists as well. And just a few short years after their installment started sending Japanese Americans to internment camps. That was them. That was their decision. Oh, but it's OK. Because they would refuse to investigate real terrorist or institutions like the Ku Klux Klan, because quoting them, after all... Like, hey, now, no, 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 I know a lot of them, okay? And well, some of them are good people. After all, the KKK is an old American institution. <laughs> oh, wait, they actually said that, huh? Yeah. Holy shit. Official reports and everything, just out loud in front of people. <laughs> yeah. I was joking. <laughs> well, but of course that fucking happened. <laughs> of course it did. Yeah. Of course, those people are still alive somehow. <laughs> hey, no, no, no. Hey. hey, that's my golfing buddy. Well, Dalton Trumbull was called to stand trial in front of the House of Un-American Activities Committee in October of 1947, along with nine others listed in Billy's list under suspicion of spreading communist ideals in Hollywood. Shortly before this, Dalton Trumbull resigned as a member of the Communist Party USA, probably doing what little he could to not be found guilty. Fortunately, it didn't help. The hearing started with opening t- statements by both Walt Disney and Ronald Reagan. <laughs> God, I loved writing that. You made, you made this shit up. Get the fuck out of here, man. Got him. No way. You see, Disney blamed his recent animator strike on communism instead of unfair work practices. You can't blame... Yes, you can. <laughs> of course you can. You own Marvel and Star Wars... It's now whatever you say goes, or you're not getting your summer. Blaming my workers' awareness of of the class that they're in (laughs) on communism. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds about right. Yeah. And Reagan, then the president of the Screen Actors Guild. This guy said some shit that was actually uh, relevant, but it hurt my business. That was exploitive and dishonest. What do you mean you won't work? And I demand compensation. This is America. And Reagan, then the president of the Screen Actors Guild, talked about the growing concern of unions within the industry. You know, communism. Just more union shit. Once the trial began, the 10 defendants Thank were they each... they have a union now, otherwise somebody might have gotten hurt. <laughs> Once the trial began, the 10 defendants were each given a long list of questions. But the biggest and most frequent question was, and they would bring this up between questions, just hoping to get them. Are you now, or have you ever been, a member of the Communist Party? And they would frequently, frequently ask it as if one of those times they're just going to be like, yeah, oh, shit. You know, like, damn it, got me that time. All right, yeah, cuff me, boys. Miraculously, all ten defendants refused to give answers to the HUAC about theirs or any other defendant's involvement in communism. Because, of course, they haven't committed any fucking crimes, and the entire trial was textbook unconstitutional. Regardless, their silence led to the arrest of all 10 men under contempt of Congress, which I think they probably made up on the spot. Dalton Trumbo soon tried. Wait, should we Google that? 
I'm sure it's a thing now. (laughs) Dalton Trumbo soon tried for an appeal based on the grounds that his First Amendment rights were being ignored. And although it went all the way to the Supreme Court, he still ended up losing his appeal. Yeah, I feel like we're in another one of those situations like we were talking about like one or two episodes ago where like, actually, it turns out when people are in a position of power... Yeah. They don't give a shit about whatever the fucking written rule is. You're going to jail for 10 years for being an asshole. That's not a law. I just made it. <laughs> like, it doesn't, they don't it fucking matter. Care. Yeah. And no one under them is going to be like, wait, no, hang on, sir. That's actually not legal. Like, it's not going to yeah. happen. Even like, if we looked it up and we saw that, like, uh, contempt of Congress hadn't been used against anyone up until that point. Do you think that they haven't cooked the book, the books for the last like 10 years and said like, Oh yeah, it's been a thing. Mm-hmm. We yeah. just never needed to use it. Yeah, it's, it's, sure. just, it's just a much more advanced form of actually the cop can do whatever the fuck he wants yes. to. Yes. It's very advanced. Cause it's going all the way to the Supreme fucking court. There's just more, <laughs> uh, what do you call it? Um, pageantry. Yeah, yes. Involved. Yes. Speaking yeah. of the pageantry, I mean, sitting down at your court case and like one of the members forgets to take off his phone fucking white hood that's got to be embarrassing but (laughs) in 1950 dalton trumbo would serve 11 months in a penitentiary in ashland kentucky following this congressional hearing ronald reagan made it mandatory that all members of the screen actors guild were to pledge that they are not a communist before being admitted (laughs) that ought to do it (laughs) wait isn't that still that's still a thing screen actors guild is yeah they still do that i don't think so no I am pretty sure. Okay, no. we're good <laughs> I mean, that's, that's fine. That's we're fine. fucking hang on. Well, I don't know when they got rid of it, but yeah, it doesn't seem to be a thing with them anymore. Okay. So, uh, eh. <laughs> well, in November of 1947, members of the motion picture association of America, also known as the MPAA had a 48 minute closed door conference at the Waldorf Astoria hotel in New York city on November 24th. The MPAA issued what would later be known as the Waldorf Statement, a two-page spread released in Motion Picture Herald and Daily Variety, denouncing the 10 defendants that would later be known as the Hollywood 10. These men would be blacklisted from Hollywood until they publicly denounced communism, which of course none of them did, except one. Uh, Edward Dimitrik, who uh, actually named names after just a few months behind bars, got his career back like promised. Whether um, whether who he named was even communist or not didn't matter. He went on to direct the 1954 Humphrey Bogart film The Cane Mutiny, which was critically acclaimed, so his career did fully recover. From the small list of people Dimitrik brought forward, Huack expanded it to over 300 Hollywood actors, actresses, writers, directors, producers, and whatever else you may imagine. They were all brought before Huack over the course of the next decade. And I did look it up. <clears throat> about um, Ayn Rand and how she may have been a part of this as well. Mm. I, I couldn't I feel find... like she was too much of a loser to actually be a part of anything going on. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> she was there as a character witness basically for courts. And she wanted to like be a part of this shit. Cause she loved like dogging on anything that was pro communist. Um, even when she was making it up, but like, they were just kind of, she was, it, it seemed to me like she was like, okay, now when do I get an office at the HUAC building? And they're just like, it's 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 coming in like a somehow less lame Ben Shapiro. Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And although given the option to come back to Hollywood, if he just announced communism, Dalton Trumbo had other ideas. He sold his home and moved his family down to Mexico City, where they would room with fellow Hollywood blacklisty Hugo Butler. And although their connections in Hollywood that knew their banishment was stupid, they would write for Hollywood under pseudonyms for the next 10 years, although they were getting paid about less than half of what they did before. And although Trumbo went by a lot of different names during this time, Sally Stubblefield, Robert Reich, even Felix Lutzkendorf, and he was still creating Hollywood hits during this time, even writing the script for the Catherine Hepburn classic Roman Holiday, although Paramount Pictures didn't give him full credit until the 2003 DVD was released. Roman Holiday even won the 1953 Academy Award for Best Story, but since his friend was faking uh, being the writer for him, he accepted the award instead. This happened again three years later in 1956, when Dalton Trumbo again won the Academy Award for Best Story for The Brave One. By 1960, the House of Un-American Activities Committee were focusing less on communists and shifting their gaze to a new terrifying enemy, the hippies. 
with this change in focus, people kind of stopped giving a shit who was communist and who wasn't. Like, as long as you weren't smoking the devil's lettuce, then who gives a shit? I mean, hell, Trumbo signed back on up with the Communist Party USA in 1954 because regardless of if he was or wasn't a communist, clearly didn't matter anymore. I also do not like boomers. (laughs) How do you feel about the hippies? I didn't expect to have common ground with (laughs) you. I don't know if it's for the same reasons, but I think they were scared of pot, <laughs> like, like legitimately terrified of what it might do. Like it's got super, super human strength. You can run fast. He just chooses not to, you know, yeah, man, it gives me an anxiety attack, but I just choose not to smoke it. It's fine. Yeah. Like, but edibles are fun though. <laughs> the what? Nothing. You say nipples? Uh, edibles. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I excuse I me for like way. trying to brush that under the rug. I still have that. Like, Leftover PTSD from when it was like illegal and when I had to hide it from my parents. So <laughs> the PTSD. Son, yes. it smells like pot in here. Are you smoking pot? <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. We'll try not to. No. <laughs> scary times. <laughs> scary, scary times. But in 1960, two huge movies came out Spartacus by Stanley Kubrick and Exodus by Otto Preminger. Now, director Otto Preminger was openly at war with the MPAA. He thought censorship was stupid, and he was right. It completely hinders artistic integrity. Back in the 50s, I mean, it. I get the need for it, but it really does hinder artistic integrity. Do you think it does not? Or, I mean, I feel like that argument is made now to give fascists, like, you know, places to stand. Uh, I, yes, but, you know. So it's a little bit more complicated. Without it, we wouldn't have Eraserhead, you know? So you yeah. just can't have censorship. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had Okay, that I think that's funny. I don't know if everybody's going to think that's funny and get <laughs> how dumb you sound right now. But. Well, back in the 50s, Otto Preminger didn't just have the MPAA on his ass for making movies about heroin addiction and courtroom rape cases, but he also had to deal with the Catholic Legion of Decency as well. The Catholic <laughs> Legion of Decency. The Catholic Legion of Decency! (laughs) Guys, maybe... (laughs) Like, fucking Christ. Indeed. Workshop the fucking name a little bit. Jesus. (laughs) Now, this this was not a Hollywood or government institution, but instead a group of Christians that had sway over things for no other reason... Wait, Christians or Catholics? Uh, Catholics. Well, they're still Christians. They're the same... Except it doesn't matter. It's it's, okay. Well, anyway, they had sway over things for no other reason than giving movies bad press if they didn't like it. Because there's like Catholics and there's like Christians where I come from. Oh, no, no. Well, those are Baptists. Yeah, yeah. yeah, No, 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 I know. They're all Christians. I I, I know. I fucking get that. But for the purpose of telling the same fucking Catholics. Yes. They're they're Catholics. No, no, no. We got got the wine snipping and the weird, the wine snipping and the weird shame in church stuff. And then we got snakes. Okay, these are two different factions. I don't know if they had snakes and then research that point. I'm sorry. Baptists do. <laughs> well, so they, uh, yeah, they basically, you didn't want to be at war with these people just only because they were very outspoken and they will put full ads in newspapers saying, don't go watch this movie. It feels a little un, un- Jesus-y to us. And then just people wouldn't go watch it. They were, um, they were actually closely tied to the same people who did the fucking Comics Code Authority bullshit. You know, that little uh, white stamp with the A that you see, like, on the old comic books? Oh, on old comic books. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. It's weird that they would want to put their stamp anywhere near, like, leotards and, like, a bunch of weird superhero shit. Now that you're saying it, it sounds completely up their alley. Mm, okay. <laughs> um, which, by the way, that fucking lasted until 2011. <laughs> you know, yeah, so the these are the people who took Mad Magazine to court. Um, anyway... Which didn't go their way very well. It was a fucking funny court case, though. Anyway, Otto Preminger didn't hire Dalton Trumbo to shake the feathers of people in Hollywood. He hired him because he was a good fucking writer. Shit, Dalton's son, Christopher, was even the assistant director on the film. And Otto was very open about hiring Dalton, but no one bothered to ask who was writing his next film. So it largely went undetected until the movie actually came out. And once the credits came up and people saw Dalton Trumbo's name, people were like, "The oh, fuck, I just enjoyed a commie movie. But as soon as this resistance to Exodus was, um, or sorry, but 
As small as this resistance to Exodus was, Kirk Douglas, star of Stanley Kubrick's Spartacus, still came out and said, Hey, you know that movie of mine you all seem to love? Dalton Trumbo actually wrote that one, too. And once people saw that they unwittingly saw Dalton Trumbo movies and that it wasn't a bunch of communist propaganda, but just really good movies instead, that anger just kind of died down. Or maybe it was. Oh, fuck. The half-naked men was part of the communist agenda. Oh, no. Pass the oil. As a side note, because Dalton was being paid under the table for a decade, Kirk Douglas, producer Edward Lewis, and director Stanley Kubrick were trying to figure out what pseudonym to put in the credits for him instead of his real name for Spartacus. While they eventually came up with Sam Jackson, uh, Kubrick thought the best idea was just to put his own name under it. Like, he wrote it as well as directed the fucking movie, and both Kirk Douglas and Edward Lewis thought that was a, a... a really bullshit move on his part. Anyway, both Exodus and Spartacus were mildly picketed because of Trumbo's involvement, specifically the American Legion, a group of veterans who were uh, picketing Spartacus when uh, fucking President John F. Kennedy walked past them to go see the show, just brushed past them. And after that, the anti-communist movement in Hollywood completely lost steam. Dalton Trumbo's 10 years of blacklisting ended, just fucking fizzled out. From here, Dalton Trumbo mostly wrote action thrillers, ones we'd never heard of, with the exception of 1973's Papillon with Steve McQueen and 1962's Lonely Are the Brave, starring Kirk Douglas and adapted from uh, the Edward Abbey novel The Brave Cowboy, as I'm sure you'll remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but one of Dalton's last excursions in Hollywood was, as far as I could tell, his first and only directed film. With the uncredited help of Louis uh, Buñuel, Donald Trumbo released a film adaptation of his book, Johnny Got His Gun, in 1971. But people could feel the allusions to the recent Vietnam War and didn't really want to be reminded of shit like that. The movie got good reviews, but overall was largely forgotten. Until 1989, when Metallica released their music video for their hit song, One, featuring scenes from the movie. Yeah! God damn it, dude. Woo! And since then, Johnny Got His Gun has been highlighted in the cult status. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we bring up Metallica a lot, actually, come to think of it. Do we? Yeah. They uh, named one of their albums after an E.E. E. Cummings po- poem or something, or one of his books. Mm. Iceberg Slim hung out with, a, uh, with that Western actor who became Sandman in the Enter Sandman music video. Yeah. And now Dalton Trumbo. <laughs> Fuck, I wish we didn't. This is a Metallica podcast now. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> give me fuel, give me fire, give me jibba dabba da. No, dude, I'm not. We're not old enough for this. <laughs> Maybe we're too old for it. <laughs> yeah, that too. James Dalton Trumbo died of a heart Fuck, attack. I'm so tired, Jordan. <laughs> we're almost I don't there, know baby. if I'm going to get through We're almost this, there, man. baby. We're almost there. I've worked. So much. I'm so sleepy. We're it's not even there. the beer this time. Shh, shh, shh. He's dying here. He's dead here. Okay. Oh, fuck. Time. I don't know. I'm trying to stay here for you. I really care about this. But Look at me. James Dalton Trumbo died of a heart attack in Los Angeles on September 10th, 1976 at the age of 70. He had a habit of consuming at least six packs of cigarettes a day. Wow, that's really good for 70. <laughs> Let's go. Come on. Come on. Come on. Give me more. Right before this, in 1975, the Academy gave him an award for The Brave One, which he wrote under a pseudonym while he was in Mexico. He had his body donated to science. His wife, Cleo, carried on his memory. Uh, Shut up. I'm sorry. His wife, Cleo, carried on his memory until her death at the age of 93 on October 9th, 2009. In his final years, Trumbo finally made a return to writing books. He was working on his first novel since The Remarkable Andrew in 1940. It was called Night of the Aurochs, and would have been about a story from the viewpoint of a Nazi who falls in love with the Jewish woman he's overseeing in a concentration camp. Probably would have been a bit, mm, not for him to write, maybe. (laughs) While the book went unfinished in its final state, the book was still released in 1979. Since his death, Dalton Trumbo has been given recognition again and again by Hollywood since at least 1993, when the Academy Awards made a new statuette for his writing credit on Roman Holiday. Initially, they wanted to give him the original one that his friend accepted for him back in 1953, but his friend's son wouldn't give it to them, so they had to just make a new one. Dalton's only son, 
Christopher Trumbo spent his entire life championing his father's legacy, making damn sure he gets every bit of credit he deserved. When Christopher Trumbo passed away on January 8, 2011, at the age of 70, his final wish was for his father to receive credit for Roman Holiday, what would some call his crowning achievement. And on December 19th of that same year, the Writers Guild granted Dalton Trumbo credit posthumously. In 2015, Brian Cranston starred in a movie about his life called Trumbo and directed by the guy who did the Austin Powers movies. What? So, <laughs> so well, I've never, what? <laughs> so while Brian Cranston. What was it called? It's called Trumbo. Oh. Yeah. You just said that, didn't you? Yeah. Oh, fuck. <laughs> We're almost okay. there. All right, I'm sorry. So while Brian Cranston was given accolades for his performance, because of course it's Brian fucking Cranston, the movie had a lot of question raised about its uh, accuracies. For one, they kind of gloss over the fact that Dalton Trumbo was indeed a full-blown communist. They make it seem like he was just a champion of free speech in the First Amendment, but motherfucker loved North Korea. Well, how the fuck I, were they supposed to get that, like, you know, funded just, uh, if they were going to be like... Uh, well, I mean... You know, they had to twist it a little bit, right? Yeah, like, you can't just go around calling motherfuckers heroes who love North Korea. And yes, they were bad. Oh. Yeah, they Wait, were. I didn't know he liked North Korea. What the I fu- just said that. Yeah, no, he loved North Korea. Oh, like, he Jesus was full-blown God. communist. And, and Okay, okay, end were, this. I'm not here anymore. They they were bad back then, too. Uh, everyone knew they were bad, but he was like, yay, communism, I guess. Oh, oh, oh he was full <laughs> fucking tanky. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah full Oh, shit. On. Yeah. All right. But Dalton Trumbo's legacy will probably best be remembered as the statue erected in his childhood home of Grand Junction, Colorado, on October 13th, 2007, depicting him smoking and writing a script in the bathtub where most of his writing happened. My sources today, Johnny Got His Gun by Dalton Trumbo, Bantam Windstone Edition 39th Printing, December 1989, and Wikipedia. No! <laughs> I'm covering the button. Oh. Because I gotta, I gotta tell you, I changed the oil of one of... Uh, one of his son's um, ex-wives. Sure you, you sure need to tell this story? Yeah. I noticed that the last name was Trumbo. And I was like, oh, shit, are you related? And she was like, how do you know that name? And I was like, I don't know. It's a very nerd. specific name. Yeah. And she, she was like, I was married to one of his sons, and I never got the name changed after the divorce. <laughs> I just thought that was fascinating. But um, are you now, or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Uh, No. Hell yeah, brother. Let's tank it all the way up to North Korea. Oh, God damn it, dude. <laughs> uh, I'll go tuck you in. Oh, God. Yeah, no, it's... I'm I'm sorry, Bangladesh. <laughs> I've been you better che- apologize to Bangladesh. I apologize to Bangladesh. I've been checked out for like 20 minutes. I was so tired. <laughs> the whole episode. You little bitch. I'm sorry, man. Get no Just, milk before bed now. No milkies. 